This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Hello, I'm Josh Ellis. I'm a little loud, sorry. Um, Professor Morrison was very clear to uh, sort of thank uh, Professor Collada for uh, making some of the points that she was about to make, and I think I need to do the same thing too. I have to admit, I had both of them as professors, and so if my uh, presentation sounds a little bit like theirs. It's either because I was a good listener or not very original. So, thank you. Um, I will be talking about the, uh, the politics and degradation of restoration in the marshes of Iraq. And I'm going to, like I said, steal a little bit from theirs. Um, very important as, as we look at this and, and any other problem, particularly local problems that become global issues, uh, to take the longer uh, historical view of political, environmental, cultural happenings, uh, to look at multiple scales, be it from local to systemic. Also, I, in particular, will be talking about a river system. Um, so it's very important to look at the systemic level, as well as the global level of uh, NGOs, academics, the media, international governments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to look at the dispersed agency of the players involved, um, which is going to call into question some of the uh, modern versus traditional dichotomy that Professor Morrison was discussing. Uh, and, uh, fortunately, Professor Morrison went in uh, detail talking about the uh, siltation effects of dams as well as some uh, salinization, so I don't really have to do that, so thanks. Um, and on her uh, last slide, she talked about the long-term uh, political and historical analysis can lay the foundation for a realistic assessment of the possibility of reservoir regeneration programs. So I would like to just change reservoir to marsh and use that as my first slide. So now I'm done thanking people. <laughs> All right. So uh, most people don't talk about their titles very much. I'm going to because I really dislike my title. Um, uh, one, it's awkward. Two, the marshes of Iraq is where we start to get the, the first real problem here. There's no good name for this marsh system. Uh, I'm going to critique this idea of localizing the marshes or even nationalizing the marshes and saying that they're the Iraqi marshes so that the problem lies in Iraq and thus the solution lies in Iraq. Uh, a lot of the international press and some NGOs call them the Mesopotamian marshes. And again, I'll talk about how that sort of connects it to our shared civilization and makes it ours. I think that's a problem too because that denies the fact that it is sort of a local problem. People talk about them being the Garden of Eden. That's just really problematic. Um, so I wanted to call it, actually the, the, the lead uh, NGO leading the restoration efforts is called Eden Again. So I'm only sort of joking. Um, I wanted to call it the politics and degradation and, re of re degradation and restoration of the wetlands area lying in the southeastern Iraq at the conflux of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But that wouldn't really fit. So, marshes of Iraq are guilty of the crime that I'm condemning. So, all right, where are the marshes of Iraq? Uh, the marshes of Iraq are here in southeastern Iraq at the conflux of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, this area here that appears to be wetlands is the area that I'll be talking about. Uh, 
this is the delta region is something else. Uh, as most of you know from third grade, um, this, this is the breadbasket of ancient world civilizations. And uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, they flow out of Turkey. Um, the Euphrates from Turkey through Syria into Iraq. Uh, the Tigris from Turkey directly into Iraq, but it's then fed from several rivers that come in from uh, Iran. And it's these four countries, Iran to a very marginal degree, uh, and Syria only slightly more so, that play a role in the story here. <coughs> the, uh, the story, the inherited story that we've got primarily from the media, but also from international organizations and now from several governments, including our own, uh, is that in the 1990s, the government of Saddam Hussein uh, destroyed these marshes, um, went in with bulldozers, flamethrowers, uh, tanks, you have it, you name it. They went in, um, built uh, canals, drained the marshes, killed people, scared people away, all because in 1991 there was a Shia rebellion in the south um, that uh, many of these uh, rebels hid out in the marshes. Thus, this was, this was a bad thing for him. So he went in and, and took care of this. Um, my problem with that is that it's not the whole story. And if it becomes the story around which the solution is framed, uh, you're not going to really solve a whole lot. So. What I'm going to tell today is a longer story, a more involved story, about processes of degradation and then the politics of restoration in the marshes. I'm going to attempt to dig deeper, to look for this dispersed agency, to give a broader historical view. Um, ultimately, I'm not going to offer you a happy, clean conclusion, for which I apologize, um, but there really isn't one. Uh, ultimately, this story is more a cautionary tale for how we look at any local environmental problem. Uh, that becomes a global concern. Um, and it's a critique of the media, NGOs, governments, all of which have benevolent aspirations. They want to improve people's lives. They want to restore uh, this beautiful place. The next slide will show you how beautiful the place was. Um, however, those benevolent aspirations, if not fully informed, um, I believe will ultimately lead to conflict uh, between people living in or around the marshes and the central government. So, all right, here are some pictures from the marshes. Um, if you want a good sort of romantic, jolly uh, European traveler in the Middle East uh, story about the marshes, there's a couple. Uh, Wilfred Thysiger, who was sort of one of the last great European travelers, uh, has, a, has a wonderful book. And he, <coughs> talks about the marshes. Uh, Gavin Young in the 1970s uh, wrote some articles for National Geographic. This picture is from that series. Um, and these are people living in the marshes with uh, water buffalo. And, and they really did live in the marshes. Uh, their houses are probably just off to the left. Um, and we'll see people collecting reeds. This is, I mean, it was a very romantic, beautiful life. There are some houses built uh, out of mud and reeds, just sort of in the water. Uh, people would keep water buffalo, raise a few chickens, um, and that's, that's what you get. Uh, however, not everybody lived like this, um, which you don't hear too much. You hear the term marsh Arabs a fair amount, uh, but you don't hear any sort of breakdown of what that means, uh, sort of sub-communities within that group. Um, they're sort of lumped all together and homogenized. Uh, needless to say, not everybody lived like this. 
Um, but that doesn't sort of make it into the press. All right, here's the United Nations. Sorry, I know lots of text in PowerPoints is a big faux pas. There you go. Uh, so here's the United Nations uh, in a sort of massive report about degradation in the marshes, uh, discussing one of the world's greatest environmental disasters. Note that they actually do talk about dams and drainage schemes, um, but then they lump back into the Eden and the Fertile Crescent. Mesopotamian stories, another wake-up call, rallying us around, restoring ecosystems. Again, benevolent aspirations. There's the marshes today, or at least part of them. They're all dried out. There's another one. You can see up on the right, it's just caked with salt. You can just sort of scoop it up. And we have some maps. On the left is actually a composite map from 1973 to 1976. Uh, the problem with it being a composite map is you don't really know what's uh, flooding due to a degree, but you don't know what, uh, from a year-to-year -year basis, what the extent of the marshes was. Uh, on the right, 2001, and you can see the former extent of the marshes is there in white, perhaps coincidentally covered in salt. I don't know if that's why they chose it, but there it is. And here's some satellite images, the same thing. Photo on the left, these are from NASA. Photo on the left is from 73. Photo on the right is 2000. Uh, this one sort of open body of water over here on the right butts up against the border with Iran, which is why there's more water, because there's no blockages on the Iranian side uh, to prevent water from flowing in. Uh, I talk about restoration. There are restoration plans. Uh, following the fall of Saddam Hussein's government, USAID, United Nations Environmental Program, Canada, Japan, Italy, a few other uh, governments, all sort of rallied around this idea of restoring the marshes. Uh, they were galvanized by this group, Eden Again, that I mentioned, uh, which is led by an expatriate uh, Iraqi water engineer whose father was an Iraqi water engineer and is now a big kayaker living in Southern California. Um, and he's made it his quest to, I'm not joking, he's made it his quest to restore the marshes of Iraq. And he's gone before uh, both the Senate and the House of Representatives in this country to advocate for uh, money to support this successfully for a while. Um, so restoration is underway. And restoration means in the centralized plans uh, from the Iraqi government who's sort of overseeing all of these other smaller other operations. Restoration means control of the waterworks, which ironically uh, were built by Saddam Hussein to drain the marshes. So, there is Saddam Hussein. So here's uh, the USAID uh, Iraqi Marshlands Restoration Program from 2004. Again, blaming Saddam Hussein, destroying this important wetlands, and we don't see any other causes. All right, ultimately when we talk about restoration projects, I think there are four questions uh, that need to be asked. There they are, and on the rest of my presentation, we'll be attempting to answer those questions. Uh, what is being restored? Why does it require restoration? Who's doing the restoration, and how is that position justified? How and by whom are these restoration goals determined? How does the restoration actually happen? Who participates? And how are the constraints involved uh, managed? The story I'm going to tell you is a four-pronged story. 
about how restoration becomes a legitimate cause, which all of these governments and all of these dollars and all of these experts are sort of propelled toward. And here's my four-pronged story. Uh, the first will be about the exaggerated agency of Saddam Hussein. Second, simultaneous globalization and localization of the marshes, which I've already alluded to. Third, the homogenization and victimization of the marsh inhabitants, which I've also alluded to, giving away my story. And uh, this arbitrary notion of time and nature. Those pictures from 1973 are going to prove to be uh, very important. Just a little bit about the marshes. Um, I wanted to give you some idea of what the size of the marshes were, but unfortunately, there's no really good number. Um, there's certainly no number from prior, from before 1973. Um, Feisiger, in his account from the 20s and 30s, uh, estimated the marshes to be actually much larger than this. Um, but the extent fluctuates greatly depending on flooding, and that is sort of year to year. Um, there's no good number to tell you how big the marshes were. They were big, and now they're not as big. Again, Garden of Eden, the flood of Gilgamesh and Genesis, the birthplace of Abraham, all of these things happen in or around, supposedly, these marshes, and they're interwoven into these accounts uh, so that we think of the marshes, we think of Eden, we think of Genesis, we think of Abraham, we think of our civilization. Uh, the geography of the area north of Basra, there are these alluvial fans coming from the southwest and the northeast, which narrow the wide plateau of Iraq into a very small 45-kilometer opening. Uh, Seawater was trapped behind that opening um, after the most recent glacial recession at the end of the Ice Age. Uh, Seawater was trapped, eventually was uh, sort of inundated with fresh water flowing in from Turkey, so it became somewhat diluted. Uh, you see these histories of Ur and Eridu, which were well inland in Iraq, being on the shore of the Persian Gulf. Um, in theory, the water reached it that far. Uh, sediment deposits filling up, leading to this marshy appearance, and a slow disappearance of the marshes as sediments flowed in uh, from the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. In theory, filling the marshes if sort of no interaction had happened, and this was happening over time, but we don't really have the data or the maps uh, to suggest that. Um, and again, irrigation in this area is nothing new. It's been going on since the Sumerians, uh, pre-Muslim, Persian, and Arab dynasties, Muslim, Persian, and Arab dynasties, the Ottoman Empire, uh, British forces, now the Iraqi government. And the marshes have grown and retracted according to the amount of control exercise over the flood water and the amount of water used for irrigation in the north. All right, so our story of Saddam Hussein, I'm not going to read these. These are different press accounts. And in the middle, uh, a member of the Congress here in the US, um, Saddam Hussein destroyed the marshes. Okay, this is, this is the story. Um, for 5,000 years, people were living in the marshes, happy. Uh, Saddam destroyed them. Between 1992 and 1993. So Saddam was very busy running around destroying the marshes. I've been looking at this stuff a long time. It's hard not to laugh because they're not right. Uh, now, uh, following that uh, rebellion in the early 1990s, it is absolutely true that the Iraqi government stepped up ongoing efforts, pre-existing efforts, to develop a series of canals that went through the marshes, draining the marshes to an extent, or cutting off the water that was previously flowing into them. Uh, a lot of these canals come up from uh, near Baghdad and from other major cities. And 
were for the purposes of getting rid of uh, effectively toxic water that was polluted either by urban environments uh, or agriculture and chemical deposits from upstream. And most people would say that there was a good element to these canals and that they did channel this dirty water uh, away. The British uh, scientists in the end of the Ottoman Empire that were looking at the system wanted to drain the marshes for this very reason. Um, and the word that most often described uh, the marshes with was toilet because the water was just so filthy. Uh, and here we have a satellite image of the degree of the canals. So there's absolute truth to the idea that Hussein's government did build canals through there and, of course, did go in and uh, kill a lot of innocent people. However, the longer history of the marshes is also very interesting. Uh, this is not in Iraq. This is in Turkey. This is a map of the Gap Project, uh, which in Turkish just means Southeast Anatolian Project. This is a massive, massive, massive project uh, incorporating both the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, their headwaters, 20-something uh, dams, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of irrigated land, canals, underground canals, everything. Massive project. And with the construction of this project, the annual floods, which brought new sediments to the marshes, which cleaned out the water system, and so thousands of years of adaptation to floods and what that meant for agriculture ended. In the 1950s, when the first of these dams was built, they're still ongoing. These numbers uh, give you pre-project numbers from the 1970s as opposed to natural, which presumably is before that, uh, and show the decrease in the amount of water in the Shat al-Arab, which is the stretch of river after the Tigris and Euphrates meet. Shat al-Arab is actually what connects to the Persian Gulf. So the fact that it goes to a negative number uh, over there on the Euphrates is alarming. Other countries, Syria, Iran, and Iraq, all of course build dams as well. Turkey's the most prolific. Um, Turkey and Iran build dams in sort of tall mountain valleys, what we think of by and large when we think of dams. Uh, the reservoirs are deep, they're cold, they trap a lot of sediment, they impede the flow of uh, animals, Nutrients rot in the water, all right? Uh, in Syria and Iraq, the geography is much different. These are low, long, flat reservoirs, uh, much more prone to evaporation and the buildup of salt content. Um, so you have two different kinds of dams, two different kinds of reservoirs, fundamentally changing the uh, chemistry and biology of the river system. Validation. <clears throat> has always been a problem. Uh, and again, the dynamic ecosystem of the marshes is dependent on spring floods for its replenishment and very existence. No more spring floods. Uh, however, uh, Amar there is the uh, Arsh, um, um, Arab Marsh Assistance, uh, I forget what R stands for, it's promoting uh, restoration of the marshes. What one man can do, another man can undo. Restoration becomes heroic because we overlook the systemic effort, uh, the systemic realities of the problem, look only at what Saddam Hussein has done, and try to reverse that. He's a well-known international villain. Uh, thus, what he has done is bad. We undo it, we're okay. So a lack of history, a focus on location rather than the wider system, and this unquestioning association, 
all of which make restoration just and depoliticize the proposed response. The proposed response, ironically, is further environmental engineering by a centralized regime in Baghdad or Basra. Some of the other uh, parts of this story, I've already talked about this idea of the name of the marshes, um, calling them the Mesopotamian marshes, talking about Eden, talking about any of these things, connects them to us and disconnects them from the people living in the marshes. It's no longer a real place, it's this imagined place. And again, the problems of Eden and doing our Christian duty uh, to restore this uh, become problematic. At the same time, they also are localized. They're called Iraq's marshes. They're disconnected with Hussein. They're not connected with the longer history of dam construction in Turkey or anywhere else. Um, that localizes them, disconnects them from the system. Again, just reiterating, <coughs> the larger system is concealed, so solutions occur in Iraq rather than the whole system. When restoration is discussed, nobody, nobody talks about getting Turkey to release more water from its dams. Nobody. Although, ironically, since those dams produce hydroelectricity, in theory, Iraq could buy electricity from Turkey, which would necessitate the release of water and would go a long way towards solving many of the problems in the marshes. Turkey has no oil. I mean, this seems like a good solution to me, but it doesn't get discussed. So, what do I? Uh, all right, homogenization and victimization of the Marsh inhabitants. Uh, in every report that you read, including government reports, everyone in the Marsh are victims, and everyone in the Marsh is just this Marsh area. So these divisions amongst that group uh, are concealed. And the, the fact that these three groups, the Medan, the Beni Hassan, and the Bedouin, had three different uh, political structures, three different processes of uh, production, uh, and ultimately three different sort of ecological effects, that all gets lost, right? And the idea that perhaps they don't all want to work together, that perhaps they have different interests even today, is all lost as well. The Medan are these people actually living in the marshes, on the water, with the reeds and the water buffalo. Um, their economy is based on fishing and on harvesting these reeds for the production of mats and boats and things like that. They're effectively pushing out, trying to increase the size of the marshes. The Beni Hassan are agriculturalists uh, on the edges of the marshes attempting to drain the marshes to grow crops. They're pushing in, right? And the Bedouin are Bedouin, they come and go. We're getting close, I'm wrapping up. Three groups, they don't all want the same thing, that continues to this day. Uh, speaks to the same point about people today not necessarily wanting restoration, wanting a different life. Particularly the Madan who are living in the middle of this water. Uh, the idea of going back and living in, for what was them, a swamp, um, is not always particularly appealing. They left for good reason. Uh, again, this is Last, second to last thing I'm going to say, 1973 is this idea of pre-Husseinia. This is the date that's picked as the sort of ideal moment for the Marshals. Nobody looks beyond that. It's the idea that because Hussein came into power in the 70s and because this picture exists that shows how big the Marshals were, that this is what the Marshals were. There's no longer term history. All right? And here is Mr. Alwash, the kayaking uh, water engineer. 
You have to allow nature, it's his idea of nature that's captured the imagination of many people. 73 becomes the reference point. I'm not going to make you read that. All right, last point. The marshes are being restored, but they're not being restored according to plan. Uh, people with backhoes, people with hoes, people with shovels are tearing down dikes. They're flooding fields. They're building farms. They're not going according to plan. Uh, some of the water is very polluted. These are nice pictures. There are many very less nice pictures um, of acidic water killing everything off. It's just stagnant water. However, this restoration plan goes ahead and will ultimately, the point, cause conflict between locals and this centralized restoration effort if the two sides do not want the same thing and are not working off the same historical basis. I'm done. If you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to answer.